morning, the good news, the sun is out despite how cold it is, so that's the good news. Uh, it's always glad to be here, and I appreciate your pastor and his ministry. And uh, as he mentioned, I do have some business cards on the table out in the lobby there. And it has my web contact information, but it has my website. And as your pastor mentioned, there's lots of resources. They're all free, so it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, there's a lot of MP3s, and there's some articles that you can download and read. So hopefully all that to help uh, the church and to help people individually to, to grow and to get some direction that um, I hope is profitable. Uh, my website guy tells me he uploaded a new teaching on where and to whom do you run in times of trial. So you'll find a little icon. Theoretically, I looked at it, it's there, so I haven't listened to it, so hopefully uh, he worked and got it up for me. So there's a new teaching on that. So today I'd like us to turn to Psalm 139 and the Psalm of David. And I'd like to look at verses 13 to 18 today. And so my perspective is that this is a point in David's life where he came to some conclusions and some insights and some revelations that he knew through his life. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for a fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was in being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. God's word is powerful because it's his word to us. So today what I want to talk to you about is God's story for you. What is God's story for you? And if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you've probably heard that history, the word history, is his story. So that's what we're going to look at today. So what is his story for you? So his story for you and for me includes the good, the bad, and the normal, everyday life. Everyone has a story. And the question is, how has his story impacted you? Because he's the author of the story. We live in a culture currently where sharing stories is very popular. Everybody wants to share their story. Everybody wants to make known what's going on with them. And we have that in 12-step programs and all sorts of things, even in our community groups and churches. And so we all have a need to tell our story. We want people to know about me. And some of us in small ways and big ways want to do that. So the culture of stories generally is being independent and disconnected from God. Most times when people share their stories, it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with them. Me, 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 me. And so it's disconnected from God, who's the author of our story. So Genesis 3, Adam and Eve um, didn't like the story that God was writing for them. Why? He told them what? Don't eat of one tree. We don't have any trees that were, but there was one. Don't eat from it. And so they wanted to write their own story because they wanted to be independent from him. And we'll look at Genesis 3 a little later. But they didn't like the story that God was writing. Part of the story was don't eat that from that tree. 
and they decided eventually they thought they would. So in reality, we always have red pens to do the editing. And I don't know if you grew up in school where your teachers would do red pens and mark what was wrong. It was never a great job in red. It was always negative if you saw red. And so when I was doing my uh, thesis for my Master of Divinity degree, um, I gave my wife a red pen to edit. And I grew up in the day of Evelyn Wood's speed reading class, so I am a horrible, horrible, very horrible proofreader. I miss everything. And so I gave her a red pen to help what I thought would be to correct some things. And so when she was done with it, it was full of red. And I was really frustrated by that because I thought it was better than apparently she thought it was. And uh, there was one point in the reading of her notes, I was so frustrated, I said, you don't know the first thing about counseling. And she said, that's true, but I know this doesn't make sense. And so, and so when it came to my doctoral dissertation, I gave her three red pens because, okay, you're the editor. But see, we don't like people to mess with our story. We want our story to be our own. We want to be that author who writes that story. And so our dilemma is unintentionally and intentionally we reject the story he's writing. We don't like what he's doing in our life. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. So we have that red pen. I think what God's doing now, I'd like to edit that and change that. Let's see how I could write that story. What could I do differently to make this a better story? And so we have that kind of mindset, whether it's intentional or not, we do want to be that editor. So we're always prepared to write that, rewrite the story. So deliberate sinful decisions by you or by others never undo God's plan for you, because he's the author of your story. See, a lot of times we take on the victim mentality and somehow this is out of control. God's not in charge of this. And we lose sight of that he is offering all things. And so I need to work my way through some of my human emotions to accept what is the story that he's writing and what does that mean for me. So when you think of Jonah, Jonah didn't like God's story. Go to Nineveh and give the word of God because I have 120,000 Ninevites and the king to come to know the true and living God. And what did Jonah do? He goes, I don't like that story. I think I'll write my own. I'm going to get on a boat. And does anybody know, don't raise your hands, does anybody know how far Jonah went? And the answer is, nobody knows. But we do know it took three days and a fish to come back. So God let Jonah go pretty far. But guess what? Jonah came back, got spit up, and what did he do? gave the word, and 120,000 Ninevites and the kings came to know the true and living God. Why did that happen? Because that was God's story. So even the plans that we have to try to edit that, God doesn't let the story change. And so Jonah's a character who gives us that example. And so he wanted to undo that story. So Philippians 1.6 says this, for I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue to work until the it is finally finished in the day when Jesus Christ returns. There's good news and bad news. God has not finished writing my story until I breathe my last breath. And when I breathe my last, my story's done. So the story is ongoing in my life. I don't know what the new chapters are. I know what the old chapters are, but I don't know what the new chapters are, neither do you. But God is always writing his story, 
And he's using it, Scripture says, for his glory. There's a redemptive nature to my story that I may not always catch. I may not always understand. Gaia, why are you doing this? Why is this a chapter of my life? I don't like this. And he may never answer that question, but we know it's part of what he's doing. Because he's sovereign, which is one of the core doctrines of our Christian faith, that God is in charge of all things. And so my observation is, <clears throat> if God is not sovereign, then we have no hope. And if we have no hope, then we as Christians have no message to share. Because that's the hope that we have, that God is sovereign. And my comfort is knowing that he's in charge of all things, that he's doing all things well. So his story is about reshaping. So how does God reshape your story? Well, Jeremiah 18, 1 to 4 says this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot as seemed best to him. The ESV says he reworked it into another vessel. The New Living says he crushed it. Think of that. He crushed it into a lump of clay and started over. So what is the problem? Is that God is always crushing and reshaping us, and we don't like that. We don't like to be crushed, because we like to be in charge. Now, you may know some people, or you may have a boss or an employee that you work with who you would label as a control freak. They have to micromanage everything. But the reality is we all have a level of control in our lives, and it's partly when it comes to God's story for us. So the purpose of Romans 9 to 21 to 23, where he, again he's talking about the potter, he said, why does he do this? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the purpose of God's story is to bring him glory. And when the chapters of our story aren't too pretty, we struggle with how does this bring glory to God? When I get a medical diagnosis, when I have problems, when kids are problems, when I have problems in school with my peers or on the athletic field, you know, what, where is God in this? And that's always our struggle. How does this bring him glory? So the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, 8 to 9, kind of speaks to this. Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. What's the condensed version of that? I will never think like God. I will never understand it because his ways and thoughts are much higher than mine. I'll never understand it. So in Table Talk magazine, it was said about the stories, the biblical purpose of stories is not just to see and hear people's stories or to, min or to minimize those stories, but to see and understand that the purpose is bigger than just the individual. It is about God and how he is using those stories to point to him, his ultimate plan for salvation, restoration, when all things will be made new. Telling biblical stories needs to be built on the perspective of the kingdom of hope and salvation. So when you think of it, when we look at our stories, or even when we're sharing our stories, do we ever include the redemptive nature, this is how God's changing me? 
Or does that always come from, this is bad for me? Or this is so great? Do you have some of your friends on Facebook that post how great things are and you wonder, is that real? Because you may know them and think, yeah, it's not that great, but okay, that's what you're telling everybody. And so I think that becomes important. So if there are centers in the stories is about struggles of life with no deep and abiding acknowledgement how it fits into the gospel story, then individuals are left without hope. And when you think about it, as we share our stories, the good, the bad, and the normal, somewhere in there, it should be encouraging to others about how they are being encouraged and giving them hope. So the purpose of sharing stories should be hope. We have hope that God is at work. We have hope that God is working. So one of the questions is then, what's in your backpack? And you may be very familiar with backpacks. I didn't grow up with backpacks. My, our son did. And when I got to speak at a missions conference in Germany, uh, we were homeschooling. So, of course, Nathan deciding whether he was going to Worthington Christian to play soccer or go to Europe, uh, he wisely chose Europe. Uh, so... Uh, but we went with backpacks, and I didn't know how smart I was. That I said, each of us is going to have a backpack, and whatever you put in there, that's what you carry. Nobody else is carrying your stuff. So my wife and I were new to backpacks, so, but each one of us had different stuff in our backpack. Because why? Because we valued different things. So we got to Switzerland, and we got to this glacier with 12 waterfalls. And the top waterfall is hundreds of thousands of gallons of water just rushing out. And then you'd walk down, and by the time you get to the bottom, there's just this little trickle. We're like, where did all that water go? Well, boys being boys, what was of interest? The rocks that had been coming through and changed and reshaped as they came out. So he opens his backpack and he looks at me and he goes, Dad, could I give you a few things? And my harsh answer was no. What was the rule? So to this day, we joke, we don't know what he left there in Switzerland, but he came home with rocks. So something was left behind. But, but the point was we carry around what's valuable to us. And sometimes we carry around negative stuff. And we wonder, why am I carrying this? Why is this what I'm telling people all the time? So... Luke 6, 45 says this. Jesus says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. So what comes out of me, because it's what I value. So similar, what do I carry around with me? What do I keep telling people all the time? Because that reflects my story. And so the question always is, it's very easy for us to be discouraged. It's easy for us to have the things that are going wrong in a fallen world, and we do live in a fallen world, so lots goes wrong. And that ends up unintentionally being our focus a lot of times, and it's what I keep sharing. And I lose hope and I get discouraged because nothing that I say represents the gospel. Like, where is Jesus in this? Or I don't know what Jesus is doing, but I know he's working. So how does my story help others? How does it help me? So what we speak kind of reveals our story, kind of reveals our perspective, kind of reveals our concern. So we come into what I think are the issue of lies. What are the lies that you have believed? What are the lies I have believed? Lies that others may have told you, 
or about you or what you've told yourself. You know, may, maybe you were in the athletics and your coach said that you were terrible, that you were awful, that you'd never play. Why are you out on the field? Maybe you had a teacher in school or a professor that said unkind things about your work and why are you here? You'll never be in that profession. So there's lots of times we hear that and we take that to heart and we don't realize or we don't ask, I wonder what's going on in that person's life that, that they would say something that unkind to me, that they would say that thing hurtful to me. What's going on is I've had a lot of people over the years where they were raised in homes where we're ashamed of you, you never will amount to anything, why are you the way you are? I mean, all these types of things, and we, we assume that they're true. And that's the point of Psalm 139, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is who I am. Now I'm broken, and God's going to redeem me. That's part of the story. But just because others don't appreciate or value who I am doesn't mean that that's true. But often we take that as truth. And we carry around a lot of discouragements, and we carry around a lot of intentionally what are lies that we should not believe. So, if you know your scripture, you know who the source of all lies is. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and, you will, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. One version says, lying is his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, lies about me. <coughs> come from people who aren't speaking truth. Now, if I have very close trust in friends, or I have a wife who edits with a red pen because it's for my good, then there are a few people that we trust, but the way that they point something out to us is out of love, not out of anger, not out of frustration, not out of disappointment. So oftentimes, people get burdened by the lies that have been told, and they accept them as truth rather than question them. So maybe some of the lies that you've heard, lies that I've heard over the years, but the problem with lies is they take root. And I believe that that's true about me, and that becomes my bondage, and that's Satan's goal, to keep me in bondage, not to keep me free. When you read Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 6, it's about my freedom, that God has freed me from the bondage of sin, and I think also not only my sin, but the sin of others against me. God has freed me from so maybe some of the lies that you've heard, or you might know someone who's struggling with a lie like this, no one wants you. You're such a disappointment. People like your siblings better than you. People don't really care about you. They just feel sorry for you. You'll never amount to anything. Maybe some of the lies you've told yourself is, others are smarter than I am. And maybe that's true, but that doesn't mean that you're something wrong with you. Others are better looking than me. Well, if you looked at me first thing this morning and what you see now, yeah, there are others who are better looking than me first thing this morning, so this is an improvement. Uh, and you're blessed by that, trust me. Um, some have more talent than me. Some have less struggles than I do. And see, when we get self-focused, we always assume everybody else has it better than we do. But we don't realize that we're all broken and other people have different struggles than I do. I'm no good. God is disappointed with me, so I can't approach him. You see, so we, believe, we hear these things, and we start believing them, 
and then we never question them, and so they take root and they become our bondage. And so this may be a little mind bender for you, but there are things like positive lies. Have you ever heard of a positive lie before? Here's a positive lie. You're so pretty, there's no one like you. Well, you'll find out when you, having lived in the college arena for 12 years as a professor, you find out that when you told you were pretty, there's others who are prettier than you from that false perspective. You can be whatever you want to be. You're that good. I watch for entertainment, so this is my dark side. I watch for entertainment the initial starts of the American Idol season. Because you find people who are there to get a spot to be a star. And sometimes the judges will say, who told you you could sing? And they'll say, oh, my mother and my grandmother. And they'll say, they lie to you. Nope, you cannot sing. You're done. And so sometimes there are those positive lies. People tell us things that really aren't true. When I had students that were wanting me to fill out applications for, for them to get to graduate school, I would say, I've been your advisor for four years. Have you looked at your transcript lately? You are not getting into Florida State. I can go wherever I want. I can be whatever I want to be. And I go, well, that's a nice thought, but you're not getting into Florida State. You need to apply someplace else. So we get told these things, and they run against reality of what's really true. Don't listen to those people when they criticize you. They're just jealous of you. One that I like humorously, I do some consulting for a mission agency in Kansas City, so I review missionary candidates. And of course, pastors are one of the references in those files. And sometimes a pastor will say, if we only had 20 more people like this couple. And as I'm going through their file, I'm thinking cynically, if we had 20 more people like this, this mission would be in a mess. <laughs> because the, there's some things here that need to be worked on. So what happens then? Lies create distortions. Lies create the distortions about who we are. So <clears throat> I would we'd go back to Genesis 3, 1 to 5 and just read what Satan said. The scripture says, Now Satan was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did God actually say it was the introduction of doubt. And of all the things that I've seen in counseling and of all the things I've seen with college students, whatever might be labeled as sin, the greatest weapon that Satan has is doubt. Because when you go back to Genesis 3, Satan could have done anything to cause Adam and Eve to stumble and he didn't. He chose doubt. Did God say? So that's why I struggle with doubt. I struggle with who I am. I struggle with who my family is. I struggle with why is this part of my story? And so the lies and distortions cause us to doubt ourselves and they cause us to doubt God. So some of David's lament songs, Lord, where are you? Why do the wicked prosper? Why have you forsaken me? Because in the midst of the difficulties of life, we feel that way, don't we? And it's hard in that moment to understand this is still part of God's story for me. And it's going to bring him glory. But there is a time when the doubt that you make a choice and accept or reject the lie. 
Do I say that's not really true, that's mean-spirited, that person's not speaking truth? Or do I begin to believe it? And so, when you accept the lie, so Romans 1.24 talks about exchanging the truth of God for the lie. When you accept the lie as truth and begin to believe that new truth, your life ends up in chaos. Why? Because it's not true. The core of what's being said is false. So we find that even in political circles, if you say something long enough and beat it long enough and say it loud enough, eventually something that's totally wrong, people will think is true. And then I start believing that, and then we enter into chaos. So the greatest lie is that I don't need anybody, including God. That was Adam and Eve. Now, we have no idea how long Adam and Eve walked with God in the evening of the night, the cool of the night. We have no idea how long they walked, do we? Could have been a thousand years. We don't know. But even walking with the living God, they still wanted independence. See, Satan was right. Knowing you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So Adam and Eve really wanted independence. If they'd eat that fruit, they wouldn't need God anymore. And that's kind of part of why we want to edit our stories, because we don't like what God's writing. And we want to be independent from him so we can do the writing of that story. So Genesis 3-7 says that Eve wanted the wisdom it would give her so she could be wise like God. And keep in mind, just because she ate first, Adam was standing right there. So as the husband, he should have been saying, let's not eat this, but he let her eat it and, and he ate it also. So if they had the wisdom of God, they wouldn't need God. So the issue is, what does God say about who you are? Not other people, not the lies people believed on the athletic field, in the classroom, in the workforce, in your neighborhood. What does God say about you? Well, we read Psalm 139, and he says lots of things. But David says one stark thing, that thank you for making me so wonderfully complex, I know it full well. See, that statement where David says, I know it full well, my perspective is that David came to the conclusion that I now accept who I am. But guess what? In accepting who I am, I need to accept who I'm not. And we don't think about that very often. But if God made me this way, guess what? He did make me this way. So here's another mind bender for you to contemplate this afternoon. God made me perfectly imperfect. God made me perfectly imperfect. Why do I say that? Because when I read the scripture about the gifts, God didn't give me all the gifts. He gave somebody else the gifts. My wife has all of her pre-med backgrounds, so she's very analytical. When we were dating, I was looking for her one evening because it was getting close to dinner time. The cafeteria was going to close. And I found her in the chemistry lab with all this apparatus. And there was these little drips coming out in a Petri dish. And she goes, isn't this exciting? I am not a science person. It's like, no, it's not. I'm going to go to the cafeteria and get my dinner. Leave you with your excitement of all this stuff. You see, God has made each of us different. So he's made me who I am. But I need to accept who I'm not. Because often what we do is we look at who I'm not and I try to improve that. And that's part of Satan's deception. If I try to work on something that I'm not, guess what? I'm, I'm not fulfilling who God made me to be. 
Because God is going to use me in the way he designed me, Psalm 139. He knit me in my mother's womb to be this way. And so that becomes a very important part of that God has intentionality in the way he designed you. He gave you the color hair. He gave you the eyes. He gave you the sense of humor, the lack of humor. He gave you the engineering mindset or whatever. Now, God did not gift, gift me in math. And when I got interviewed for this college professor job, which was beyond my comprehension, why anybody would want me to do that. Uh, but I was being interviewed by two men that both had two PhDs. So if you want to feel like you don't know anything, just sit in front of two people with two PhDs. So the question I had to ask, because in psychology, and I had suffered through that, <clears throat> you have to have statistics and research methods. And that's math. And I'm not a math person. So... I persuaded that angels, this is wrong doctrine, but angels exist because how I got bees in those classes, I have no idea. Because I think the angels wrote my answers to all those questions. So I had to ask these two men, do I ever have to teach statistics and research methods? Because that's part of psychology core requirements. And this one guy goes, no, that's my area. I love stats and research methods. I'm going to do all that. Praise Jesus, I'll take the job. I don't have to teach that. So the program grew faster than we expected. Our chairman hired someone to teach statistics whose English was not their first language. That was a disaster. The class was a disaster. So what do students do? They go to other professors for extra help. Now they're coming to my office, Dr. Mack, can you help me with the stats? And I have to say now to college students, sorry, I'm an idiot in math, I can't help you. So word got around and after two semesters, nobody came to my office for help with statistics, so that was a good thing. It's five years, Joe calls me, he goes, I'm sick as a dog, I can't make my class. Everybody else has classes. You're the one who's free. You need to go teach my research methods class. It's like, whoop. We had an agreement five years ago, Glenn doesn't do that. So he says, they're working on group projects, all they have to do is work <coughs> on their projects. Okay. So I show up at the classroom door, with seniors, Holy Bible, a classroom of seniors said in unison, what are you doing here? <laughs> now they were correct. What was I doing there? Research methods is not my thing because it's all in math. And I said, well, you're correct. Now, see, I could have said, how dare you disrespect me, blah, blah, blah. But guess what? When you own who you're not, then it's not a surprise to other people. They can't use it against you. And I said, well, you're correct. I'm not qualified to teach research methods, but I am overqualified to be your babysitter for your group, so get in your groups and get to work. <laughs> so see, owning who we're not, who God made us not to be, is not because I'm deficient, as the world might think. It's because God's going to use me here, and he's going to use somebody else here. I'm not mechanical. I have a friend that keeps telling me, I can teach you how to change the brakes in your car. I go, no, you cannot. You can think that all you want, but I will have parts left over. So what? So I need a mechanic. I need somebody who's gifted as a mechanic to fix the brakes on my car. You see, so when I own who I am and own who I'm not, I live in great freedom because no one else can dissuade me or think me, make me think poorly of myself and I live with freedom to work, move forward 
Because now I'm living out God's calling for me, and my satisfaction comes, my peace in life comes from living out who God made me to be. So I would like to say stop comparing yourself to other people, because God didn't make you them. He made you you. So the gifts that Paul talks about in uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 6, uh, you know, um, and 1 Corinthians 12, are all about the gifts. And you've read those passages, I'm sure. So the point is, God has gifted us differently, and that's his design, Psalm 139. He knit me, but he knit me differently than he knit you. And so I need to live in that. So what I would like to suggest is, begin to own how God has made you and accept and use the things he's designed and gifted you to do. Quit trying to do somebody else's job. Reaffirm God's design for you. It's to be valued by you every day. See, that's not pride. Thank you for making this way. Reaffirms every day who you are and allows you the freedom to move in that. What does what David say? Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. How much I appreciate it. So he accepted that. So I would say if you struggle with that, make a post-it note. Place it in your bathroom mirror or wherever it, it would be known, seen by you. And read it, out, read it out loud to yourself every day. This is who God made me to be. Enjoy yourself today. See, that's not psychobabble. That's reaffirming how God made you. So as you enter the broken world where people who may not appreciate you, that's not going to influence or dissuade you from who you are. They can't rob you of your confidence. So accept how God has designed you, has made you. Because why? Because he's the master designer. He needs you to be exactly who he designed you to be. So what should you not do? I would say not covet someone else's design. Quit trying to be something, someone else trying to think that someone else has a better gift than you do. So when we try to do things God has not designed us to do, then there's all sorts of chaos and fallout. The one thing that happens as we go through this life experience is, tells us that things that we were told are not true. You may be actually better than you were told. And you may not be as great as you were told. So words are powerful, and words have the power to entrap us into false beliefs. So believing lies produces a false identity. I'm not good. I'm not worthy. I'm less than. <clears throat> so I want to encourage you from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will enter the kingdom of God. That's a long list. Now here's his hope. And such were some of you, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Labels, contrary to our popular culture, labels are not identities. Labels are descriptions of behaviors. That's what Paul says. You're all these things, but now you're not. So whatever label you've been living under because somebody said that's who you were, guess what? God's story is about redemption. He's redeeming you. He's redeeming me. And so labels are not identities. 
and they should be rejected then. So, when we think of that, we live under God's grace. Romans 6, verses 6 to 7, 11, and 14 say this. We know that our old selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and live to God through Christ. Sin no longer has mastery over you, for you no longer live under the requirements of law. Instead, you live under the freedom of grace. So God has redeemed us. God has knit me. God has made me who I am. Begin to accept who you are and quit trying to be who you're not. Because that's the way you have that red pen to edit your life. That's the way I have the red pen to edit my life. And it's easy to be distracted by other of those labels. It's easy to be distracted by other people who said things about me or who I think I am. And the result is chaos. And so this is our last thing, is that when I believe the lies and I take on other identities that are not mine, there's chaos. And so sometimes, as my mentor used to tell people that he would counsel, not all people, some people, he would say, you're the architect of your own misery. Isaiah 45, 18 to 19 says this. For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. And he made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I have not told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. I, the Lord, speak what is true and declare what is right. See, God didn't create the world to be one of chaos. God created the world to be one of order. When you go back to Genesis 1, what does Genesis 1 tell us? He took the chaos of the world and brought order. And as soon as Adam and Eve ate that fruit, guess what? They introduced chaos back into the world. So chaos is not the norm. Chaos is abnormal. So I want to close with this. There's five teachings from this in Isaiah that we should be encouraged in the midst of chaos, in the midst of doubt. What does Isaiah tell us? God is faithful to his promises in the midst of chaos. He proclaims bold promises. God does not whisper, number two, God does not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. So God is clear in speaking in the midst of chaos. That means what? God can always be heard in the midst of chaos because chaos never outdrowns God's direction to us. Number three, if I could not be found, God can be found in the midst of chaos. He said, if I wouldn't have told Israel to seek me, if I couldn't be found. Again, because God is sovereign, he's not trumped by any of our human endeavors or outcomes. So truth can always be found and known in the midst of chaos. And then God says, I declare what is right. So how can I know truth about me? I listen to God. I listen to him speak to me. I reject the lies of others. I reject the falsehoods of others. And I get back to Psalm 139 that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And I would suggest that just in a practical way as you have time. Just get a piece of paper, cut it in half who I am and who I'm not. And list who you are and list who you're not. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not a math person. I'm nothing. And then begin to realize and celebrate who God made you and forget about who he didn't make you. Because somebody else is doing and he's never going to use you over here if he's made you here. And that's the freedom that you and I need to know. That I need to embrace the God story that he's writing through me. 
may not always be the chapters I want, but it's how he's going to use me. And that's part of my wrestling, that's part of my growth. So, we can all be transformed, we can all be renewed. We can all be, as Paul says, such for some of you. I'm not, I'm not characterized by who I used to be or what other people said I used to be. So our conclusion is God continues to write our story until he calls us home. So it's going to be a lifelong process. And God is still writing your story. So quit trying to steal the pen and trust the author. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we struggle sometimes to know that we're fearfully and wonderfully made because others look at us and tell us things and we look at ourselves and we feel inferior. And yet, Father, that's just why Satan discourages us from actually living out our calling and impacting the world for you. So, Father, I pray that you give each of us boldness to accept who we are, to accept who we are not, and to live out the calling that you've given us and realize that that's how we impact the world. That's how you use us. So, Father, help us even in the struggles of life to celebrate that you are writing a story to use it for your glory. Give us that vision. Give us that clarity this week and in the weeks ahead in Christ's name.